Good morning once again. As I mentioned earlier, my name's Dobby, and I'm glad that you're here today. If you happen to be a visitor today, we're certainly happy that you're here. And I hope that you won't make any final judgments from this one experience. <laughs> Most of our, or almost all of our church staff and leadership are on a mission trip in Honduras this week, as we've already mentioned. So uh, we're the few left behind to hold down the fort, so to speak. But anyway, we're glad to be here. Uh, our pastor, John Tate called me and said, you know, we're going to be out, and I want you to think about preaching this Sunday. And I said, wow, that's a responsibility, but I'll, I'll do that. I'll step up. I said, well, what, what, are we, what are we talking about? For those of you that have been coming, you know, we're in a sermon series about the Ten Commandments. So he said, you get the Eighth Commandment. So I said, well, what's the Eighth Commandment? <laughs> he said, it's, thou shall not steal. And I thought, well, that's going to be a short one. <laughs> Perhaps. But I, I told him, I said, I'll try not to let you down, brother. I'll try not to let you all down as well. But I heard a story about a pastor who was writing a sermon, and his young son saw him laboring at his desk and all of his notes, and the son asked the pastor, well, how do you know what to say? And the father said, well, God tells me. And the son looked at his notes and said, well, why do you keep crossing things off? So I kind of feel like I understand how the guy felt. But at any rate, I believe what the Bible says. I believe uh, it to be God's, God's word, which is truth. And I believe his words are much more powerful than mine. So I'm going to refer to a lot of scripture this morning. And uh, we have some, some verses to put on the, on the screen. Byron, the rock star that he is back there, figured that out this morning. I don't know if all of our versions will actually match up. Just bear with me. We'll get through this, I promise. So we've been through this sermon series on the Ten Commandments. To recap a couple of overview things that we've learned so far, we've seen that the Ten Commandments deal with every part of our lives. They have both a vertical and a horizontal aspect. Vertically, they deal with our relationship with God. The first few commandments, I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no other idols before me, no carved images, You shall not take my name in vain. You will keep the Sabbath holy. Those deal with our relationship with God. The last six commandments concern our horizontal relationships. Those are our relationships with others. So we've learned these commandments are not just a set of rules to make us squirm, but they are God's benevolent instructions for how to live. He created us. He designed us. Wouldn't it stand to reason that he wrote the owner's manual, so to speak, on how to live. Like a loving father, out of concern for the well-being of his children, God is telling us, I created you to live this way. It's what's best for you. The Ten Commandments reveal the very character of God, and his guidelines lead us to freedom and abundant life. They're like an outstretched finger pointing the direction a person should take in life. So today brings us, as I mentioned, to the Eighth Commandment found in Exodus 20.15, simply, steal not. That sounds pretty cut and dry. We got that? Anyone for early lunch? (laughs) However, as we've seen in studying these other commandments, uh, there's a lot more to them than meets the eye at first glance. There's more to glean than just 
steal not. So let's take the next few minutes and take a little closer look at this eighth commandment. Why don't we pray together one more time? Father, we just again thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. We give this time to you. Lord, I ask that you forgive me for when and where I fail you. And I pray that your word will be proclaimed and received here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. It was a hot summer afternoon, and there was a seven-year-old little boy playing in the front yard with some neighborhood friends. They had a couple of garden hoses and a sprinkler. They were just passing the time in the water. A mother walked out on the porch, and she called to the little boy and said, I have an errand to run, and you're going to have to come with me. So grab a towel and get in the car. So the little boy wrapped himself in a beach towel and climbed into the car, and they drove a few blocks to uh, a friend of the mother's. She had something to deliver or drop off. And they got there, and the friend happened to have a five-year-old little boy. So as the mother and the friend visited, the five-year-old told the seven-year-old, come back to my room, I want to show you some of my treasures. So there was action figures and um, Legos and probably a matchbox car or two. And as they were in the room, the the seven-year-old spied in the corner of the room a clear plastic jug filled with coins. And the seven-year-old said, where'd you get all those coins? And the five-year-old said, well, every day when my dad gets home from work and he empties his pockets, I get his loose change. And I've been collecting it for some time. He said, here, let me show you. So he grabbed the jug and he poured out the coins in the middle of the room. And as they were sorting through them, the five-year-old said, you know, I really like the brown ones. And the seven-year-old said, you don't care for the silver coins? And the five-year-old said, no, no, I really like the brown ones. And the seven-year-old thought to himself for a moment. And then he said, you know, I could probably take those off your hands for you. (laughs) And the five-year-old boy said, cool. So they laid out the beach towel and began to separate the brown coins from the silver coins and placed the silver ones in the seven-year-old's beach towel. Got time to leave. The mother called the little boy. They got back in the car and drove home. And I imagine on the way home, the mother knew something was amiss by the bulge in the beach towel. And so when they pulled into the driveway, the mother told the little boy, let me take your towel inside and you can go back and play with your friends. And the seven-year-old said, no, no, I've got my towel. It's okay. And the mother said, no, let me take the towel inside for you. You don't want to leave it out here and get wet. The seven-year-old said, no, 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 I've got my towel. It's okay. The mother said, or I imagine, what's in the towel? So they went inside, and the little boy had to explain what he had done. And the mother promptly beat him. (laughs) Or as much as you can beat a child with a wooden kitchen spoon. But I can personally attest that that spanking hurt because I was that seven-year-old little boy. So after the spanking, my mother put me back in the car. We drove right back over to her friend's house. I certainly had to give the coins back, but I had to apologize to that mother and also to that little five-year-old boy. So I think we would all agree that what I did was wrong. My father certainly agreed because when he got home later that night, I got another beating. (laughs) But thou shalt not steal. We might think first... Of course, that stealing is taking the property of another without right or permission. Stealing can be appropriating ideas, credit, or words without right acknowledgement. It can mean to take, get, or win insidiously, surreptitiously, subtly. It can be cheating someone out of what they are owed or delaying payment 
that you may owe someone. Stealing can occur through misleading advertising, shoddy products or services, lazy people taking advantage of the goodness of others. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, Paul says this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work and eat their own bread. You see, there were some in the church there in Thessalonica that were mooching off of the church, so to speak. They enjoyed the benevolence of the church, but they weren't putting anything in. They were only taking. Paul goes on in Ephesians 4.28, and he says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, which is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So the Eighth Commandment certainly is a call for us to protect and respect personal property, but there's something deeper. There's a spiritual intent that contrasts getting versus giving. The Bible over and over teaches us the virtue of giving. Luke 3.11 says, He who has two tunics, let him give one who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Matthew 5.42, give to him who asks of you. 2 Corinthians 9.7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus summed it up best in Acts 20.35 when he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So if we're really honest about it, who owns everything? I mean, the universe and everything in it. Job 41.11 says, Who has preceded me? that I should pay him. Everything under the heaven is mine. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Haggai 2, 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. James 1, 17 says, Every good gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So if everything ultimately belongs to God, then we're simply stewards to manage the resources he's given us. So as I was thinking about that this week, what came to my mind is, do I honor God with my time, my talent, and my tithe? Those seem to pretty much sum up the resources I've been given. So am I stealing from God when I don't obey his guidelines in these areas? What about time? Someone once said, time is free, but it's priceless. You can't own it, but you can use it. You can't keep it, but you can spend it. Once you've lost it, you can never get it back. Do any of us remember a time in our life that we wish we could have back? A do-over, perhaps? Time wasted? Time spent frivolously? Perhaps we should have more purpose to how we spend our time. In Psalm 90, 12... Bible says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. The Apostle Paul understood that time was important and the way Christians use it can be a powerful testimony to those around them. Am I leveraging my days for the kingdom? Am I taking the time to understand the will of the Lord for my life? How do you get to know someone? Spend time with them. How can I imagine to know the will of God for me if I don't spend time with him? I must confess to y'all this morning that I'm pretty selfish with my time. I like to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And let alone shortchanging my creator at many times with my time. I was convicted this week as I was preparing that the one who bears the brunt so many times of my selfishness is my sweet wife. Many of you know my wife, Jill. She is a big heart and loves everybody. She is a dear, dear person. But do I honor my wife with my time? She's in Honduras this week, so she's not here so I can say this, right? I'll get with you, Byron, later and we'll edit the podcast. But... Christ told us men to love our wives as he loves the church. That's pretty important. What about talent? Each one of us has been created with talents, with abilities, with a special understanding or aptitude to do something really well. The Bible teaches we're even blessed with spiritual gifts to be used in edifying the body. 1 Peter 4.10 As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's manifold grace. That special something that you're good at, do you do it for the glory of God? What's the testimony we display in doing our thing? A great example of this, I think, is um, somebody I've admired, the Olympic runner Eric Little. You may recall the movie that tells his story, Chariots of Fire. Little was a very gifted and talented sprinter. He was a devout Scottish Christian. And he was set to run an epic race against a British sprinter named Harold Abraham in the 1924 Summer Olympics held in Paris, France. The world was waiting to watch these two run the 100-meter dash. And as it turns out, the 100-meter dash that year was set to be run on Sunday morning. And Little refused to run on Sunday. He said, I'm not going to compete. His quote was, God made countries, God makes kings, and the rules by which they govern, and his rules say to keep my Sabbath holy. So I, for one, intend to keep it that way. Can you imagine standing on the world stage and saying, I'm not going to compete on Sunday because my God directs me otherwise? It's pretty powerful, I think. He ended up in that same Summer Olympics running the 400-meter race, which he he won a great victory. And at the end of that race, his great quote is, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. What a great statement. Do we exercise our gifts to feel God's pleasure? This church and this community have so many needs, and I challenge us to be involved, to use our talents to serve and to love others. 
Are we stealing from God when we don't use our gifts for His glory? Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What about our tithe, our resources? Tithing is an Old Testament concept talked about in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It was a requirement by the law that the people give 10% of the crops they grew and the livestock they raised to the tabernacle. Now, I'm not aware in the New Testament a specific 10% being stated, but as we talked about earlier, the spiritual intent of the Eighth Commandment is that it's better to give than to receive. And remember Paul said, He who stole, let him steal no longer, but let him labor so that he may have something to give him who is in need. Not just to take care of himself, but to give out of excess to someone else that has need. Paul's urging us not only to not steal, but to produce and accomplish so that we can take care of those in need. It should stir us to service and usefulness on behalf of those around us. So whether you're a stickler on the 10%, the gross or the net argument. I believe the concept of tithing is much more about our attitude of worship toward God than it is about the amount. He doesn't really need our money, but again, he created us, he blesses us with resources, and he's telling us that it is best for us to have hearts of giving. He wants us to give. Think of the early church in Acts 4. It says they have everything in common. People sold everything, gave the proceeds to the disciples who distributed as need was. And the last verse in that chapter I love. It says, no one among them lacked. They gave everything and all their needs were met. That was the model of the early church. Remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. There was a master who was going to go away on a trip, so he called in three servants he said, I'm leaving for a while. I'm going to give you something to be responsible for while I'm gone. So the first servant, he gave five talents. The second servant, he gave two. And the third servant, he gave one. And you remember what, what happened in the story? The one who had five was industrious. He went out. The text says he negotiated. He turned his five into ten. Likewise, the one who had two turned his two into four. But the third servant who had one... What was he? He had a spirit of fear, right? He was afraid that if he lost some of it, or all of it perhaps, the master would be mad. So what did he do? He hid it in the ground, he buried it, and did nothing. So when the master returned, and he calls the three servants in, what does he tell the first two? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Because you were responsible over small things, you will be responsible for great things. And what does he tell the last one? That third servant, he says, you wicked and lazy servant, take his talent and give it to the first. So he was left with nothing. If it all belongs to God anyway, we're simply to be faithful stewards to manage the resources that were given. Andy Stanley wrote a study on faithfulness in our finances. Our small group went through a couple years ago, and he used the illustration that his ten fingers represented 100% of his finances. And he said, so often our perspective with our finances is like this. Clenched fist, it's all mine, and I'm hanging on to it. Sometimes we might give 10% to the church, but the other 90%, I'm still hanging on for dear life. He said, what if we changed our perspective from clenched fist to open hands? 
It's all God's anyway. We're just managers. How would it change the way we view and use our resources if we were open versus clenched fist? I heard a sermon that Darren Patrick gave one time, and he said, you're a thief if you're not generous. That's a pretty strong statement. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And we were created in the image of the ultimate giver. So are we cheating God when we don't give? Practically, what does this mean? How do we follow these commandments? Does anyone here know someone who's been successful at following all the commandments? Someone who's been faithful enough to complete the guidelines that God's put in place for us? Probably can't think of anyone who's doing all of them. Maybe a few. I only know of one who was able to fulfill the law. Only one who lived a perfect life, and that was Jesus Christ. Even as God was laying out these benevolent instructions for living to the Israelites, he knew they would not be able to keep them. He knew they would fail. He knew we would fail. But he had a plan. A plan of rescue and redemption. The grand author of history would write himself into our story to fulfill the law for us through Christ. As he promised the forefathers that he would make of them a great nation, a special people, to have relationship with him, he promises us the opportunity of relationship with him through Jesus. Just as he rose up Moses and delivered his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, he offers us a divine rescue through Jesus Christ. As the Israelites built the tabernacle in the end of Exodus so that God's presence could dwell among them, God sent Jesus to dwell among us, to live the life, to face the same challenges and temptations that we face, to love, and ultimately to die as a substitute for us. And then in John 14, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit to live within us, God's presence with us in a most intimate way. At the Last Supper which was a Passover meal. Remember where that started, the Israelites in Egypt. Jesus referred to the new covenant in my blood, Luke 22, echoing the words of Moses in Exodus 24. Jesus described his death as an exodus, a departure that he would accomplish in Jerusalem, Luke 9:31. And then in the ultimate act of giving, Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. But that's not the end of the story. He's not dead. He rose from the dead. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, but Jesus defeated death once and for all so that we could live in freedom. As the Israelites were looking toward the promised land, we now have the opportunity to look toward heaven. One of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, says, there is a narrative tension in the Old Testament that leads all the way to the cross. Our God is holy we are not. We know what we ought to do, but we just can't do it. The gospel tells us that God has a plan to fix our hearts. If we let Jesus in, he will change us from the inside out. He is God's plan of divine rescue. In Christ, we are enough. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2.9 You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation who his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Christ, what you ought to do and what you want to do becomes the same. Keller says it's when our duty equals our pleasure. John Owen said, We cannot perform our duty without the grace of God, nor does God give grace for any other purpose than that we may perform our duty. The grace we experience in Jesus Christ is the answer. I think about the old hymn. I believe it was a hymn. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. John Newton penned the words, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. So don't steal. Give. Give of our time, give of our talents, give of our resources. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just again thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for who you are, that you are a sovereign and good God. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care enough about us to give us instructions, to give us a manual to show us how to live this life. And even more than that, Lord, we thank you you sent Jesus to live the perfect life, to show us the example. Lord, I... I pray that um, as you work in our hearts, our duty will truly become our pleasure. That we would give of ourselves to others and to you as we experience the good grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.